This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Up, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Spontaneous Eruption by Brian Reynolds and A Beach in Kauai by Tom Conaboy. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts. Spontaneous Eruption, written and read by Brian Reynolds. Listening time, 6 minutes, 12 seconds. Candace and Cindy roll their eyes and smirk at Mr. Watson, the way he holds his clipboard up against his weirdo tie, like anyone would care what he's been writing. They watch him walk right past their project and talk to Janice Hiller. Well, la de freaking da They kick each other underneath the table, then giggle. They're doing science. They're passing science, actually. Mr. Watson said, Any 8th grade student who manages to plan a project, who totally finishes it and enters it in the Prince Andrew Middle School Science Fair, will pass his course. It's planned, done, entered. They're cool. They're going to pass. Woohoo! Janice at her table is explaining how the wing bones in her skeleton of a pigeon which, can you believe it, actually looks like some kind of bird, are roughly similar to the bones in the front leg of her skeleton of a rabbit, which totally looks like a scrunched-up human baby, gack, boiling up animals, picking out all the bones and gluing them back together. Gross. Janice is weird. The whole idea of touching bones, like from animals well, except for maybe Colonel Sanders, is totally gross. The table to their right displays charts with percent thingies and chemical letter stuff Mac tacked to a corrugated backboard. It belongs to Sally Ann Piper. She says she spent two whole evenings writing the title, Which Washing Detergent Gets Clothes Brighter? In 14-day glow colors, it's a freaking work of art. Cindy says Sally Ann's father did the write-up. Candace says she deserves a prize for just the title. Hey, why not? Even though Sally Ann hasn't been at her station all evening, she's been checking out Jason's entry, the point guard on the b-ball team. Jason's project is... Will drinking tons of Pepsi screw up his foul shot? Awesome, right? That's another reason for giving Sally Ann the prize. Mr. Watson keeps asking Janice questions, then stops and writes stuff on his clipboard. Janice will win, of course, like somebody cares. Candace punches Cindy in the arm. They both laugh. Boring, says Candace. Let's walk around, says Cindy. Let's kick some butt, says Candace. We could check out Jason. He might need some help. If Sally Ann, like, breaks her arm or takes a faint. Let's party. Let's make some noise. Candace opens the box of baking soda and begins to pour. I'm loading it right to the freaking top. You think? 
You're going to get us both in trouble, says Cindy. Watson said, just sit here. Candace clucks like a chicken. Cindy laughs. Then, go for it, girl. Dare. We could tip it up. Aim it right at Janice. Candace cups her hand over her mouth like she's a terrorist. Like Mr. Watson could read lips. As if. Like he'd even notice if the fire alarm goes off. She pours the last of the white powder into the hollowed-out heap of modeling clay. No, Sally's. Wait, Jason's. Aim it there. What if he gets hurt? Yeah, like baking soda's going to kill somebody. Right. Maybe, says Cindy. Like you'd know anyway. It's an experiment, isn't it? Candace re-aims the cone of clay a little to the left of Jason's project, ten yards, two aisles away. The whole town would be so pissed if Jason got hurt in the middle of the playoffs. We should have tested it first, says Cindy. Candace makes the chicken noise again. Okay, okay, which one? Cindy puts a hand on each of the two plastic pitchers sitting on the table. Well, duh. Mom uses vinegar to clean the coffee maker, so that's for cleaning up the mess. Your job. It so stinks. Right. Cindy hands the pitcher marked water to Candace, who pours it over the baking soda, and the girls watch, incredulous, as the thin lava leaks quietly over the sides of the clay mountain, out across their table, down their crude sign, how a volcano works, and puddles on the floor. Well, duh. Two aisles over, Jason launches another tennis ball at his pipe cleaner hoop, while Sally Ann Piper claps. Candace and Cindy clap, too. Then parents and students, without stopping what they've been doing or looking up, join the spontaneous applause. Jason winks in their direction, and the girls barely suppress a scream. Science is so cool, says Cindy, as she pours vinegar onto a paper towel to clean up the mess. The End Ryan Reynolds, a retired elementary school teacher, lives and writes in southwestern Ontario. His stories have appeared in Frigg, The His Quarterly, The New Quarterly, Lichen, Event, and other journals. One of his stories was nominated for the Journey Prize. A Beach in Kauai, written by Tom Conaboy, read by Anne Rushton. Listening time, 10 minutes. A Beach in Kauai Every Christmas for 30 years, Marjorie received a letter from Francisco Perez Quinto de Goma. It was always fat, 10 or 12 pages of tight, neat writing on good quality paper. Each one began, Dearest Marjorie, and inquired after her health before chronicling Francisco's past year and anticipating the one ahead. They were witty and informative, and Francisco appeared to enjoy an eventful lifestyle. Marjorie had no idea who Francisco might be. 
It must be wrongly addressed, her neighbor Valerie said, when the letters first arrived in 1973 and 1974. But they're all addressed to me personally, dearest Marjorie, and he seems to know all about me. Well, it must be somebody you met once, on holiday perhaps. I'd remember a name like Francisco Perez Quinta de Goma. Francisco was an engineer. In 1973, he was in his first job after graduating with a first from Cornell. It's all so daunting, he wrote, putting theory into practice, knowing that everything I do has to be 100% right. It's not like being a student and accepting a 50% pass mark. If I'm only 50% right, the bridge I'm designing will collapse. I work at it day and night, Marjorie. It's daunting, but very, very exciting. Marjorie shared his excitement, felt pleased to be involved, even remotely, in his nascent career. She admired the earnest way Francisco applied himself. It was no surprise to her, as the years passed, that he progressed into more and more important positions. I smile when I think back to my first job, he wrote in 2002, how worried I was about not making mistakes. I was a little more than a tea boy, though I didn't realize it at the time. Mind you, Marjorie, perhaps I still am and don't realize it yet. He could be amusing like that, self-deprecatory, with a light touch. Although he took his work seriously, Marjorie liked that he didn't view himself in the same light. He'll make a very good father, she thought, around 1980, mindful but not possessive. He'd offer a sympathetic ear if his daughter had problems. He wouldn't laugh at her, patronize her, break her confidence. A daughter could go to a father like that and talk about boys, she felt. Marjorie had never talked to anyone about boys. The more she hadn't, the less she needed to. Dearest Marjorie, Francisco wrote in 1981, I have marvelous news. I have a baby daughter, Isabel. She's now six weeks old and tiny and holds my finger and smiles. I never thought I'd be cut out for fatherhood, but she's perfect. I've never been happier. Neither, she thought, had Marjorie. She clapped her hands and wondered how beautiful the new Dagoma child must be and how lucky to have such a father. Isabel was followed in successive years by Francesca and Mariette. It's my very own monstrance regiment of women, Marjorie, and I'm quite run ragged by them. In 1985, he sent a single photograph of three little girls, dark-haired, pale-skinned, smiling girls, standing neatly in a row with their arms by their sides. Behind them was a palm tree and a golden sunset. These are my poppets, and this is Kauai, Francisco wrote, the quietest of the Hawaiian islands. This is the finest place on God's earth, Marjorie, so calm, so peaceful. You could spend a day here for every grain of sand on this beach and never weary of it. When I retire, this is where I shall live, passing my days beneath the palm trees, watching the ocean. Marjorie had the photo blown up as large as possible and placed it in the most expensive frame she could find. It hung above her mantelpiece, the only picture in her house of people still alive. As the 1980s turned to the 1990s, Marjorie waited for word of a son. However much he loved his daughters, Marjorie felt certain Francisco would want a boy. He was a big supporter of the Boston Red Sox, and although Marjorie didn't know whether they played baseball or football, she cherished the enthusiasm which suffused his subscriptions of their fortunes. It was almost like a release back into childhood, she thought, his chance to escape the responsibilities of work and fatherhood. A Francisco Jr. would have been perfect for him, and although he never said anything, 
Marjorie shared his disappointment as the years passed. Francisco's circumstances gradually changed, but not his letters. Promptly every Christmas, he wrote of trips to Disneyland, of the girls growing up, of job promotions. In 1995, he described the death of his father. He was a fine man, Marjorie, in his own way. I wish him peace. It was only then that Marjorie realized Francisco had never mentioned him before. You don't have children, do you, Marjorie? He wrote in 1998. You're very wise. Hormones should be banned. So should teenage boys. He related the news of Isabel's prom, an event marred by a torn dress, a fistfight, a kidnapped pony, and a bottle of Jack Daniels, all described with characteristically sardonic wit. Marjorie recalled the trouble she found herself in when she was caught drinking pims, alone at the East of England show in 1968, and smiled at Francisco's tone, at once concerned and indulgent, above all forgiving. She could also see the way he must have tried to hide a smile as he reproached his eldest daughter. Only two more proms to get through, he concluded that year. Then I can pack them off to university and get some of my time back. Kauai is calling me. It's too quiet for the girls, so we haven't been for some years. The first chance I get, I'll be back. Maybe I'll take early retirement. Marjorie sighed as she read this. The girls were going to university already. Francisco was contemplating retirement. She looked at her collection of letters, uniformly neat, seemingly identical, yet spanning a quarter of a century, chronicling the detail, the life of a man she had never met yet knew better than anyone alive. There's so much to do in life, don't you think, Marjorie? I think one needs two lives at least to fit everything in. Marjorie memorized these words, recited them in bed at night, marveled at the energy of the man who wrote them. I have a new job, he wrote in 1999, and how appropriate it is. As we get ready to start a new millennium, I'm working on the International Space Station. It's going to be amazing, Marjorie. It will be the most visible man-made structure in history. Virtually anywhere in the world, you will be able to look into the sky and see it and I'm working on a space truss, which helps to hold it all together. It's the most important thing I've ever made in my life, apart from the girls, of course. I always said he'd make it to the top, Marjorie joked to herself, and now look at him, on top of the world, looking down. She reread this letter more than any other before or after, each time smiling at the boyishness in which he described his new work. It was the same tone of excited reverence, with which he described the Red Sox results. Finally, Marjorie relaxed and stopped worrying about a son for Francisco. He seemed the happiest man alive. For four years, his letters detailed the progress of the space station, and Marjorie marveled at the complexity of it. It's the most remarkable project I've ever been involved with, Francisco wrote. I'm very tired, but I'm happy that this shall be the pinnacle of my career, even the girls admit that maybe their daddy's a clever old so-and-so after all. Marjorie thought it curious that Francisco's 2004 letter was briefer than normal, making no reference to the space station. It discussed two family reunions and reported some small work projects, but there was no anticipation of the year ahead. Although his workload appeared lighter, the letter seemed more rushed than usual. Marjorie suspected he must have an important commission, perhaps for the military, about which Francisco was sworn to secrecy. She hoped he wasn't overworking himself. 
Not that I grudge him the time myself, she thought. He's wonderfully generous with his time for me after all these years. But I do hope he's looking after his family properly. Marjorie did not receive a Christmas letter from Francisco in 2005. December turned towards January damp and dull, and Marjorie read and reread the old letters as she waited for an update to appear. She remained unflustered. No one would have known from her demeanor that she was worried. But Marjorie, as she read his words in bed each evening, as she looked at the picture of three smiling girls on her mantelpiece each morning, grew even sadder. In March, a letter arrived. Dear Miss Everett, it began, I was going through Francisco's things and came across your name. I don't know who you are, but I'm afraid I have some very sad news for you. Marjorie stopped reading. With a determined smile, she folded the letter and returned it to its envelope. She put it behind the clock on the mantelpiece beneath the photograph of Francisco's three daughters and never looked at it again. If she didn't know who Francisco Perez Quinto de Goma was, she was free to think of him any way she chose. Marjorie hoped he was enjoying his early retirement beneath a palm tree on the beach in Kauai. She felt sure that one day she would hear from him again. The End Tom Conaboy has won competitions at JBWB and 7th Cork. His work has appeared in about 60 e-zines and journals, including Word Riot, Transmission, Reflections Edge, Alter, Eclectica, and The Harrow. He writes with Alex Keegan's Boot Camp. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off, copyright Bound Off and the respective authors, all rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.